let's, let's pray together and then we're going to get right into it. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. How hungry we are for the word of God, Lord. We know that what we're about to look at is inspired by God, breathed out by God, is the very word of God. And Lord, that as we study this book, march through its pages, then Lord, you're going to renew our minds. And we're going to think more like Jesus and walk more like Jesus and talk more like Jesus and see the world through the Jesus lens. Would you breathe a prayer to your church and say, Lord, change my life through this series. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Tell your neighbor, perk up and listen. This is going to get you. Now, <clears throat> I, I've given you the notes, as you can tell. And I'm going to be going pretty much by the notes. Now, I will break away and ad-lib um, quite a bit probably on, on, from the notes. But the, the essential message is there for you and it's going to be there for you every week. Now, I want to begin with a simple outline of the book of Romans that anybody can remember. So you see it there on your first page. And notice it's Romans and you see the lines above. All right. You see the plus sign and the fingernail and then the straight line and the arrow. You see all that. Well, that's because here's the book of Romans in a nutshell. Look under the R, the cross. That's what we're going to encounter in Romans 1, 1 to 17. The power of the cross. God's righteousness is shown through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Then the ditch. Now that's in Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, 20. The ditch. The ditch is about man's sin. Uh, man is in a ditch. If you're not saved, you're in a ditch. You're in sin. And man's sin and guilt is evident through its presence and judgment. And Paul is going to be showing, uh, showing us that all of mankind is in the ditch of sin without Jesus Christ. But then M, you have the road. So we got the cross, the ditch, the road. Chapter 3, uh, 21 through chapter 5. Um, God presents us as righteous before God through faith in Christ. Righteousness through faith. Amen? Then you have the plan. And that is uh, chapters 6 through 8. And the Lord calls us to live out righteous lives by Christ's power within us. And we're going to see uh, Romans 7, Paul's dilemma. What am I going to do? I keep messing up in the flesh and falling in the flesh. In Romans 8, he gives the answer. Uh, walking in the Holy Spirit. And if we by the Spirit do put to death the deeds of the body, we shall live. So that's the plan. Chapters 9 through 11, the world. So that's about God making his name great by spreading his grace to the entire world. And that means Gentiles, which are most of us. If you're a Gentile, give me a big amen. Uh, and if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, in case you didn't know. Now, then chapters 12 through 16, the kingdom. God's name is glorified by his people living out righteous lives. So we've got the cross, the ditch, the road, the plan, the world, the kingdom. And that's the book of Romans in uh, six easy ways to remember, okay? So let's begin part one and let's look at Romans in a nutshell. Let me give you a little background on the book of Romans because it's, it's so powerful. Most believe that Paul's letter to the Romans uh, to be the zenith of his writings, and I certainly do. This is the, some have called Romans the Himalayas of the New Testament epistles, uh, the zenith of Paul's writings. 
Um, while all scripture is divinely inspired and without error, Romans stands as the mountaintop of Christian theology. In one of the most important documents in the history of the world, no question about it. I would venture to say, uh, as books go, Romans is probably, well, it's one of the top most important books ever written. All right? While at Corinth, Paul heard that a woman named Phoebe, an active member of the church at nearby Sancria, was planning a visit to the city of Rome. I'll write you a letter of commendation to the saints at Rome, Phoebe, he said. A letter of commendation, and he wrote a masterpiece of 16 chapters. All right. And he did. And the Christian skeptic Renan is credited with saying that when Phoebe sailed away from Corinth, she carried beneath the folds of her robe the whole future of Christian theology. Everybody say God used a woman. Because Phoebe was female. You get it? And he was right. This skeptic was right. She was carrying in a ship from Corinth uh, to Rome the most important book on Christian theology ever written. Now, the book of Romans may be broken down like this. Purpose, to express the nature of the gospel, its relation to the Old Testament and Jewish law, and its transforming power. The major doctrine of Romans is salvation. The key passage Romans 3, 21 to 26, go home and read them. The influence of, of Romans is, is uh, indescribable. One example, Martin Luther in 1515, through preparing lectures on Romans, felt himself to be reborn. Uh, Luther was a, was a monk. He was a Catholic monk and struggling with his faith and having all kinds of doubts and questions. And it was in, in teaching Romans and having to study Romans that he experienced a born-again experience and launched the Protestant Reformation, of which we tonight are a part. Amen? The entire Protestant Reformation sprang from Luther's experience with Romans. I gave you the major themes in Romans here, the wrath of God, a righteousness from God, Abraham, a man of faith, a man of faith the benefits of believing, does justification by faith promote sin, life in the spirit, the triumph of believing, what about the Jews, practical Christianity, and the obligations of love. There you have it. Now let's begin with the salutation on the next page, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Let me read it. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand from where, everybody? Through his prophets. In what holy scriptures? The Old Testament. All right? Regarding what? His son who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 5, through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from what, everybody? See, what we're going to hear hammered over and over again in Romans is, you are saved by faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. And that's what changed Luther's life when he realized it's not by works of righteousness that I have done, but it's by faith alone. 
And when I put my faith in what Jesus did, I'm declared righteous. I'm good with God. Not by one thing I did, but by everything Jesus did. Amen? Now, verse 6. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, notice how Paul identifies himself in three different ways. He was a servant. Servant. Greek word doulos literally means slave, a slave of Jesus Christ. He belonged without reserve to the one who confronted him on the road to Damascus. Amen? Two, he was called to be an apostle, apostolos, the Greek. Sent one is what that means. And Paul did not choose, he was chosen. Now I want you to say with me, I didn't choose. I was chosen first. Some of you say that like you're not so sure about that. You see, when you go out and you say, last night I found the Lord. No, you didn't. The Lord found you. Right? Okay. So he's a servant, doulos, a slave. He's an apostle, a sent one. And he had been set apart. He was set apart by God to serve in the interests of the gospel. The word sanctification means set apart. He's telling us, God set me apart from the world and everything in this world. All the sin of it. He set me apart. He, you know, how many of you have paper plates in your house? How many of you have regular just glass plates? You pull them out all the time and use them. But how many of you have some china? Now let me ask you, do you pull out the china to serve the kids hot dogs? No. You pull out the china. Listen, you rarely go to that china. Why? Because it is set apart for special use. So are you. You're set apart by God. In the sanctification process for special use. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a called out people. Amen? So everybody say, I'm set apart. Now his purpose in writing verses 2 through 6 was to establish his apostolic authority, which was often challenged by uh, the Judaizers and others. He believed among, uh, along with the prophets that Christ Jesus had been the fulfillment of God's promise in the Old Testament to send a redeemer. And Jesus was it. Now Paul offers in verses 3 and 4 two affirmations regarding Jesus. One, with respect to his fleshly existence or incarnation, he was descended from David, which was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. God had told David, I'm going to extend your house and your descendants forever. Forever. All right? Then two, with respect to his present status, he was son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Amen. Now, you see dual words used a lot by Paul. He, he had some, some, some words he loved to use over and over again. And two of them are grace and peace. Now those dual words, grace and peace, that he uses in the salutation combine a Christianized form of the Greek and Hebrew greetings. Now real peace only comes as a result of the grace of God. Amen? So he put them in the right order. He said grace and peace be unto you. Because you're not going to have peace until you've experienced the grace of God. The grace of God shows us our need for God and shows us the way to get right with God, Jesus Christ. When we respond to the grace, we experience the peace of God, right? So grace and peace. Peace is what we experience when we're right with God. And it'll make you healthy too. And it'll take wrinkles out of your face too. And it'll do for you what curves can't do for you, right? 
I want you to get that. Uh, Cindy and I have, have often talked how righteous living will help your countenance. If you go off into deep sin, it warps your countenance. Amen? So that's free. That's not in the notes. I'm just throwing that out there. It'll save you money with Max Factor and others. All right. Now, we know that Paul had long desired to visit Rome. Look what he says in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Look what he says, at last. Why does he want to come to them so bad? Verse 11, he answers it. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I don't want you to be under. He says, I want to come to you so I can bless you. And we, we know that he said, I've tried to come to you over and over again, but Satan hindered me. Satan hindered me from getting to you. Satan hindered me. How often we want to do something we know is in the will of God. It may be blessing some person, building a church like, like I have three times. Um, but if you're carrying a blessing with you and God's called you to impart that blessing, and that would be all of you because all of you are walking blessings in Jesus. But have you noted how when, when, when you try to get to somebody to bless some blockades come up, he says, I've tried to get to you because I want to give you a spiritual gift, but, but Satan, he, he nails who did it. Satan put a blockade up and I couldn't get to you. So he says, I'm trying, I, I, I want to come to you at last. Verse 13, I don't want you to be, here, here he tells it, unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. So just walk away knowing when you're trying to move in the will of God, don't be surprised when something rises up and stops you and prevents you and hinders you. Sometimes we need to go, this isn't flesh and blood. This isn't just uh, uh, circumstances that aren't going my way. The enemy is literally trying to block me from doing the will of God. Verse 14, I'm obligated to both the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the, uh, and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. And after thanking God for the Roman Christians, Paul informs them of his long-time desire to visit them. His reasons for wanting to come were, one, to share a spiritual blessing. Two, he wanted to play a part. He wanted to have a part in the incredible Roman gospel harvest. He said, if you're preaching the gospel, I want to be in on that. I want to share in that because Paul was a massive soul winner. Amen? I mean, he was, he was a, he was a, he was always looking to win souls. That's what he was about. Now, next, Paul magnifies the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 16. This is so good, I want you to read it out loud with me. Ready? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Everybody say, I'm not ashamed. See, Paul said, why would I be ashamed of something that can save you from hell? 
Why would I be ashamed of something that can set you free from what is binding you and ruining your life? Why should I be ashamed? Do you see a, 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 an, an ER, uh, an EMT? Do you see somebody, you know, uh, coming, uh, an EMT coming to pick somebody up that is injured, carrying them to the hospital? Do you he- hear them saying to them, I'm so sorry I picked you up? I'm so sorry I'm trying to get you better. I'm so sorry I gave you a shot. I'm so sorry that I'm trying to save your life. No, no. They're not ashamed of being an EMT. But folks, we do more than help somebody get better physically. We carry the gospel and it saves their eternal soul. So Paul said, the last thing I am is ashamed of carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ to anybody. Why? Because contained in that gospel is the power of God for their salvation the minute they believe. Verse 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now here he goes. He's already starting on how you get righteous. How can you attain the righteousness of God? Do you do it by keeping the Ten Commandments? No, because you can't. Try it. I want to watch. Try keeping the Ten Commandments. You can't do it. That's why God gave them, to show us. I I can't attain the righteousness of God in my own human strength. I can't do it. And the the Ten Commandments and the law were used to to whip us into faith. Because by faith alone are you declared righteous by God. And this is going to be Paul's theme song through the whole book of Romans. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that comes by faith from first to last. Just as, as it is written, righteous will live by faith. Now what we just finished is the cross part of Romans. We got the cross, the ditch, the road, the plan, the world, the kingdom. We just finished the cross part because he ends with the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because what is the gospel, everybody? Is the gospel just God loves you? Is it? No. That's part of it. That's not all of it. What's the gospel? You haven't shared the gospel unless you have said to the person you're talking to, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And if you don't go to the cross, you won't be saved. But if you go to the cross, you will encounter the power of God unto salvation. And and you will be declared righteous by God. Why? Because the righteous shed blood of God's lamb will cover your life. And, And God will say, righteous, justified, sanctified, glorified. Amen? Amen. So we finished the cross part. Now, these passages strike to the core with incredible clarity the message of the gospel. It is the saving power of God. It is the power of God for the salvation of everybody who believes. And the apostle is very clear that the gospel is not simply a display of God's forgiveness for sin. No. It brings total deliverance from the results of Adam's sin. You go from lost to found, from hell to heaven, from blind to sight. Amen? 
Uh, it's total deliverance. And not just of your soul, but of your body. Your body's coming up out of the grave one day. If you're here for the rapture, great. Because um, believe me, in a moment, you will be up there if you're here for the rapture. But if you, your body dies before the rapture comes, part of the message and promise of the gospel is your soul goes to heaven the minute your body dies, but your body's going to come out of the grave. Your body's going to, those that are dead in Christ will rise first. Graves all over the world are going to give up bodies when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and the trumpet is blown. Uh, uh, millions and millions and millions and millions more all the way back, all the way back to the days of Jesus are coming out of the grave. Can you imagine that? And there's going to be a meeting with the Lord in the clouds, in the sky, and so shall we ever be with the Lord and comfort one another with these words. So everybody say with me, first we are justified, which means deliverance from the penalty of sin. Then we are sanctified, which means deliverance from the power of sin. And we are glorified, which means deliverance from the presence of sin. Total deliverance. When I get saved, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin broken off my life. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? Amen. Amen. Now we're going to get down and get real serious. Because now comes the really, really strong stuff from Paul. I was talking on the, on the radio um, before coming tonight. And I said, you know, what Paul lays out in the second half of Romans that we're about to look at um, is a blueprint it is a blueprint for any society that rejects God. It's a blueprint. It's a guaranteed series of consequences. Now let me ask you folks something before we dive in here. How many of you are aware that America has essentially rejected God? Is that news to anybody here? Shouldn't be. How many of you are aware that we're moving God out of everything, we, out of the schools, out of the military, out of the government, out of the public square? Don't talk about Jesus. Talk about Muhammad. Talk about Buddha. Talk about hugging a tree, but don't talk about Jesus, right? Uh, and, and how many of you can see that we're beginning to pay some huge consequences for those decisions, right? How many of you know that America was built on the Judeo-Christian ethic, that is, the, the ethics given to us and the morals given to us and the principles for living given to us in both Old and New Testaments. Are you aware? Now, I know that all the founders were not Christians. I know that, but it doesn't matter. They were still under the influence of the Judeo-Christian ethic, and they wove it into our Constitution, into the Bill of Rights and all of the amendments. Are you aware? And now we're trying to throw all that out. So what we're about to look at is a very somber prophecy for any society that rejects God. So let's dive in. Next, Paul talks about the wrath of God and his judgment on sin. Look at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So now we're looking at part two of the little acronym I showed you, the ditch. The ditch, the ditch. We had the cross, and now we're looking at the ditch. 
That is, everybody is in sin, and God's wrath is being poured out. Now, the Greek verb tense here is the wrath of God is currently and ongoingly being poured out on mankind. Now, I know we don't like to talk about wrath, but how can you avoid it if the Bible talks about it all the time? The wrath of God. When he says the wrath of God is being revealed, the word being there is in a present active indicative verb tense in the Greek, and it means ongoingly, continuously, 24-7, the wrath of God is being poured out. Now, how do I get away from the wrath of God? I attain righteousness by faith in Jesus. And as soon as, I, as soon as I'm saved, wrath of God's off of me. Are you with me? The minute I'm saved, the blood's on me and the wrath is off me. But can I be honest with you tonight? Until you're saved, the wrath is on you. And not just Paul said this, Jesus said it. He that believes in me has life. But he that does not believe in me does not have life, and the wrath of God abides on him. That's John. John's gospel. You'll find it there. I think around chapter 4, chapter 5. But Jesus said it. He that believes on me has life. He that doesn't believe on me doesn't have life. But the wrath of God, present active indicative, abides continuously on him. So most people don't realize as soon as I'm saved, the wrath is lifted off of me. I'd rather be under grace than wrath. Amen? Amen? How about you? Because the wrath of God ain't no fun. Now you say, well, then how does it appear? How does it manifest? We're about to see how. All right? Now, Romans 1, 19 through 320 is a lengthy elaboration on this opening statement right here. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. So he's going to carry that thought all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20. Uh, Paul states that the revelation of God's righteousness in the gospel and the revelation of his wrath are continually taking place at the same time. The righteousness is being revealed through the gospel, the righteousness of God. The wrath of God is being revealed on those who sin and don't repent. So you've got two things going on in the world all the time. God is offering his righteousness through the, through the gospel. And if you don't go to the gospel and get saved, then the wrath is being poured out. I look at America, I look at the world, and I see the wrath. Because we're so stupid to think that we can walk away from God and do it on our own. We're about to see how stupid and foolish that really is. Um, God's revelation through nature. Now, Paul is going to begin an, an argument here. Uh, he's going to lay out some things uh, about the opportunities that God has given us to realize he's there. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is what to them, everybody? Plain. It's obvious to them. Who's the them? All of humanity. Because God has made it plain to them. So everybody say, God is fair. Now look, um, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been, been made, his creation, 
so that men are without excuse. You, you can't look out there at any, anything. Look at the birds. Look at your own eyeballs in a mirror. Don't tell me that evolved. Your eye? How did it evolve? First the iris, then the lens, then the pupil. What came first? And how did it last without the rest of it? It all had to come at once. I mean, it's crazy. And, and that's why evolution is so damaging. Because note here, we're being told that the creation of the world is in front of every human being to attest to the reality of God. And we tell our children, you didn't come from God. You came from an ape. You came from some primordial sea where a tadpole crawled out one day and grew legs. And from that tadpole, everything else came into being. That's crazy. It's irrational. They're without excuse. He's talking about those who are suppressing the truth. That's what they do. They suppress it. Suppress means to push down. Ever have a jack-in-the-box? Remember the jack-in-the-box? The clown would pop up and you'd push it back down and close the lid on him. That's what he's saying we do with truth. We take truth and we push it down and put a lid on it. God's truth. And our nation is doing that at warp speed. But you know what? It always comes popping back out. Okay? The lost pagan world had an opportunity to know God through his revelation of himself in nature. God, says Paul, has disclosed himself in nature. Man could even learn of God's eternal power and deity by observing what he had made. Now, he's not saying you can get saved by looking at nature. Because you've got to hear the gospel. You've got to go to the cross. But here's what he is saying. He's saying, if you're lost and you're out there in spiritual darkness and if you died today you would go to hell, and you look out at nature and you're honest with yourself, you will say, no way that just happened. And I, I believe this, everybody, that when you say that, when you acknowledge it and don't suppress it and put a lid on it, God makes sure the gospel gets to you. He will. If he has to appear to you in angelic form and tell you about Jesus, somehow God will get the gospel. If you say, God, if you're there, show me. You know what you can expect? Somebody's coming to you with the gospel. Okay? The refusal to acknowledge him or render thanks to him brought judgment. Now, three observations can be made here. God is the revealer and nature is the medium of his revelation. Two, God's revelation in nature does not guarantee a positive response. No, a lot of people look at it and go, eh, I'm not going to acknowledge God. Verse, and, chat, and the third thing, God's revelation of himself in nature establishes the minimal basis for every person's responsibility to him. When you look at that nature and you go, there has to be a God. That's what it's there for. The message in Romans is that people may respond to God's revelation in two ways. In faith or by rejection. By a yes or by a no. No is the answer of rebellion where faith is the response of trust and commitment. Okay? Let's move on. First, we see that arrogance is revealed in verses 21 to 22. 
Here's why judgment fell, everybody. Follow closely. For although they knew God, they knew he was there, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Now notice, they didn't say, wow, there's got to be a God. I glorify you. Or I'm at least, I'm thankful that I'm alive. Thankful, th- thank you, God, for giving me life. I don't know much, but I'm going to thank you anyway. I'm going to be thankful to God. Now, notice, when you, when you don't acknowledge him and you're not thankful to him, look what happens. Their thinking became futile. Something happened in their thought life. Right? And their foolish hearts were what, everyone? So look what happened. The minute you go, I'm not going to glorify him. I'm not going to thank him. I'm not going to acknowledge him. I'm putting him down and I'm putting a lid on him. Immediately, your thinking goes south. And your heart is darkened. And Jesus said about the heart, he said, if your heart is dark, how great is that darkness? Okay? So look, immediately, there's consequences to rejecting and suppressing God. Futility in your thinking, that means your thinking didn't get you anywhere. Remember the rat on the, on, the, on the hamster's wheel, the hamster on the hamster's wheel? He's running, 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 not getting anywhere? That's what futile thinking is. Your thinking is not getting you anywhere. You're not coming to good conclusions. Your thinking is not leading you to answers. The moment man refuses to glorify or thank God, darkness creeps in. Although they claim to be wise, look at this, we're wise, we don't need God. What happened? They became fools. You know what the Greek word for fools here is? Moron. I'm just giving you the Greek. Moron. (laughs) Although they claim to be wise, we don't need God, you just became a moron. That's what the Bible says. I didn't say it. The claim to be wise drips with arrogance, doesn't it? Our whole nation is saying, we don't need God. Oh, we've never needed God more. In rejecting the knowledge of God available in creation, people inevitably claim to be wiser than God. And look what happens. An exchange happens. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like Mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Now listen carefully to me. We're made to worship. Every person in here is wired to worship. God wired human beings to worship. And you can either worship the real God like we did tonight, Adam leading, it was great worship time, or you're going to worship something else. But I promise you, I don't care who you are, where you are, how old you are, I, I don't care. You're worshiping something. It may even be you. You may be looking in the mirror. There is none like you. That's what a good narcissist does. No one else. And on you go. But you worship rock groups. You worship other philosophies. You worship nature. You worship. Have you ever watched a a rock concert? Have you seen the worship that happens? It's worship. Their hands are up, pointed towards the singers. It's worship. They treat them like gods. You're going to worship something. And if you don't worship the real God, look at the digression. Idolatry followed the refusal to acknowledge God as sovereign Lord. 
Notice the decline in the idols they chose. They go from man, but it gets worse. Then they're worshiping birds, then animals, and then they're worshiping reptiles. That's what Egypt did. Egypt worshiped frogs. God's judgment falls in verse 24. Now here comes God's judgment. Remember we said the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. How is it being revealed? We're about to see it. One, impurity takes over. We're told three times in Romans 1 that humanity made a tragic exchange. You can't exchange something, church, unless your will is involved. Are you with me? So, you know, if I've got a $10 bill and you've got a 20 and I tell you I'll exchange the 10 for the 20, you're going to do it real quick. But it's an act of the will. Now, he's saying here, mankind made a decision. And mankind always will. When you reject God, you're going to exchange God for something else. You're going to make a switch. And look what they did. They, they exchanged the worship of God for idols, verse 23. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, verse 25. And they exchanged natural relationships for unnatural ones, verse 26. Each time, Mark what happens. God gave them over to their sinful desires. Now, you know what? God gives up those who give up on him. He will eventually, and here's what happens. And this happened in the Old Testament as well as the New. If you insist on going your own way and you've chosen an idol, it can be a person. It can be a relationship. It can be another human being that you choose. It can be a wrong kind of relationship, but you choose it. And, and you, you suppress the truth about God and you choose that relationship. You have just made that person your idol. That's why Jesus said, you got to put me first, always. You got to hate mother, father, brother, sister, friends, everybody. It takes a second seat to Christ. Because if anybody takes his place, you've crowned an idol. People do it all the time. So the deal is God will finally say, he'll, he'll convict you, he'll, he'll, he'll deal with you, he'll send his word to you, but if you insist on going your own way into whatever it is, a person, place, or thing that you choose over God, God will finally say, go for it. Do you notice that when the prodigal started to leave the house, God didn't, the father didn't try to talk him out of it? No. He said, Here, here's your inheritance, Go. Go find out on your own. And he, he turned him over. God turns over individuals and God will turn over a whole society. This is what it's talking about in Romans 1. God gave them up. To what? Your own sinful desires because they will destroy you. They will, they will be your judgment. The consequences of your sinful desires will be the, your judgment. God, so notice it's not thunder and lightning the way judgment manifests. It, it's not earthquakes and rumbling. All the demonstrative things we tend to think about when we think of judgment, it's none of that. God just says, go. You don't want me? Go. You suppress my truth? Go. I turn you over to what you want. 
God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Did you catch that, everybody? Because what were they doing? They were crowning the idol of sex over God. Sex is my God, the the ruler of my life. What drives me and what is more important to me than him? So he gave him over to it. Now, it's important that we know here that this is heterosexual sex, okay? They exchange, there's that word, the truth of God for a lie. And they worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now here's the lesson. People are free to receive or reject God's revelation. All right? We have a will. However, they are not free to do so without consequences. Can I have an amen? Verse 24 mentions the sinful desires of their hearts. When grace is lifted off the human heart, When God lifts his grace off of a heart or a society, only evil comes forth. What did Jesus say? Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Notice adultery, and I'm not going to linger long here, but I got to say this. Adultery, sexual immorality. What's the difference? Well, in in another translation, it would say fornication. Fornication, sexual immorality comes from the Greek word pornuo. And from pornuo, we get the word pornography. And it's any and all sex outside of marriage. I challenge you any given Sunday to scour Christian television and see if you hear one whisper of a message on that. Oh, no. Because they're too busy telling you God wants you rich, God wants you this, and God wants you that, driving a Bentley and all of that. They're not telling you Christianity the way it's written. You're not going to hear, crucify yourself, die to yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Oh, what a great message. You're not going to hear it. Because no, they're too busy tickling ears so that you won't leave their congregation and they won't lose your money. Can I be honest? I'm just, I'll tell you, things drive me nuts every week. And that's one of them. And that's why Christianity is failing in America. And there's so many uh, uh, scandals and catastrophes happening because we're not teaching the church how to walk in the spirit, how to deny themselves, how to pick up their cross. And we are not preparing them to handle persecution. And so they're stumbling and falling and messing up. All right, so the first giving over was to heterosexual sin. Now, here comes the second giving over. Everybody say, this is getting good. I told you it was serious. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And how did shameful lusts manifest in sexual perversion? So again, the giving over was to sexual stuff. Even their women, I'm just reading the Bible here, verse 26. Even their women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. What does the Bible call lesbianism? Unnatural. Shameful. 
I'm just reading it. Now, I'm not condemning the sinner because we all, if it's fornication, that's sin. If it's adultery, it's sin. Any kind of sexual sin is wrong. But, but I'm reading to you the Bible words here, okay? In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves, that means in their bodies, the penalty that was due for their perversion. Wow, that's strong talk. But note with me, when a society begins to drift from God, the first thing you'll see is a sexual revolution. Now let me ask you, did we see a sexual revolution in this country? Yes, we did. And when? The 1960s. Tune in, turn on, drop out. That was the message of the 60s. And what happened? We threw the Judeo-Christian ethic out the window and we, we went into full speed ahead, the sexual revolution. Look it up, read the 60s. That's what happened. Now, what was happening in the eyes of God? America was being turned over. Y'all are looking at me shocked, like, would God really do that? If you reject him and you demand your own way, he will say, go for it. And that's what happened, I contend, in the 60s. And then what happened in the 80s? What kind of revolution did we have? Homosexual revolution. I, I submit to you, the second turning over happened. Boy, y'all's wheels are going... I can hear the gears clicking. Notice the adjectives God uses to describe same-sex sexual unions. Unnatural, lustful, indecent, and perverse. Paul describes this sexual impurity as degrading their bodies with one another. And these passages make the following observations about homosexuality. Homosexuality is an abandonment to shameful lust, verse 26. Homosexuality is unnatural, verse 26. Homosexuality involves indecent acts, verse 27, and homosexuality is sexual perversion, and it results in a serious breakdown for those involved, both bodily and spiritually, verse 27. There's a penalty that is experienced in the physiology of that person. It's a penalty. Now, I submit to you, if you look at America's history, just in the last 50 years, well, even more than that, all the way back to the 60s, think with me. It was known as the decade of the sexual revolution. So we experienced the first turning over. In the 80s, we began to see the gay pride marches, um, loud and proud, no shame. This is what I am, who I am, the way I live. And if you say anything negative about it, you're a bigot and you're a homophobe and you're a, a phobe this and a phobe that. All kind of phobes came around. But the bottom line is, all of a sudden, our culture embraced it. And folks, when a culture embraces sexual perversion, that culture has been turned over. I'm just reading the Bible. 
okay? Then there's one more turning over, and honey, we are there. Wait till I read this one to you. Don't, you can't, no one will disagree with this one. Watch. A third time in five verses, Paul wrote that when people disregard God's revelation in nature, he gives them over to the normal consequences that follow. And in verse 28, Paul declared that God gives them over to a depraved mind. Depraved mind. Uh, um, a depraved thinking. Remember that futile thinking? Now it's gotten worse. They've been given over. Furthermore, here's the verse. Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, third giving over. He gave them over for a third time to a depraved mind. And this is the final and the worst judgment of all, to do what ought not to be done. Turning from the light of revelation prevents a person from thinking correctly about the issues of life. Depraved, another translation would say reprobate, a reprobate mind. But here's what it means. Void of judgment. I can no longer tell right from wrong. I can't tell what's right and what's wrong anymore. I'm dazed and confused. Up is down, down is up, right is wrong, wrong is right, dark is light, light is dark. Are we there? Evil is good and good is evil. I can't think straight anymore. Because I've been turned over. I, I, my, my thinking is reprobate. I know this is hard. I know this is harsh. And what a great way to start a series. But I got to tell you what's there. This is serious. I told you it's a blueprint for any society that rejects God. This is the, this is the stages it will go through before its end. You can't understand morals anymore. You don't understand justice anymore. You don't understand law anymore. You don't understand authority anymore. You don't understand truth anymore. And those that tell the truth are your mortal enemy. They'll look you straight in the eye and tell you something that makes no logical, rational sense. I could give so many examples where our culture is right now. You know, we're putting men claiming to be women in female sports. It's not fair because men are stronger. That's not a put down. That's just the way God made us. They're stronger. They're going to win all the time. It's not fair. Why would we do it? Because we're not thinking straight anymore. Do you see it here? It's in the word of God is telling us right here what's going on. So we got some big burly guy out there running track with long hair, looking like a girl, but he's not a girl. He'll never be a girl. And, and he's winning all the, 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 the uh, trophies and the women, they're shut out of their sport. And yet our current government is saying that's what it should be. No, it's not. That's crazy. It's wrong. It's not fair, and guess what? It's not rational, but what I'm saying is when you have a reprobate mind, and I'm going to boldly say it, I think a, a big swath of America has been turned over. And so that's why we're seeing ir irrational, crazy thinking and, and laws being formed that don't make any sense at all. There's no reality behind them. Well, reprobate mind. 
Okay, here's what happens when you've gone through those three. Here's what people look like after those three. Given up to impurity, sexual perversion, and a reprobate mind, Paul gives a sobering picture of the lifestyles of the God-rejecting Gentiles by listing 21 negative qualities. And in closing, I'm just going to zip through them. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. This is what man looks like after these three stages. They have been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways. They don't have, it's not that there's not enough ways to do evil. They got to invent ways to do evil. Okay? They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. Now, this last part, think of America. They not only continue to do these very things, but approve, applaud those who practice them. That's chapter one. In a night, let's stand together. Well, I don't know if I'm coming back to this, Mabel. Let me tell you, Harold, come back and bring Mabel with you. It's going to change your life. All right? I know, but how many of you are ready for some real preaching out of the Word? I mean, seriously. Yeah. Wait till this goes on radio. Oh, my. All over the country. All right. Let's thank Jesus. Lift your hands to the Lord. Father, we just thank you for this powerful book and this powerful blueprint, this, this incredible read on a culture that rejects God. And Lord, we do pray for our country. It's not too late. Oh God, we've been turned over. There's no question, a big part of it. But Lord, there's always hope in Jesus and the preaching of the cross and just help us, Lord. And we pray that you will pour out mercy and grace and that a vast harvest of people will come to Christ, come to the cross, be declared righteous by God, by, God, by putting faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we're saved by faith. We praise you for your grace and mercy. We'd be so lost without you, Lord, so lost. Say with me, thank you, Jesus, for my salvation by faith, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I praise you. I thank you. I glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Amen.